This morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 11, and to give us a context, I want to read. I want to read the first uh, 12 verses. I want to read the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 11, and uh, the title of today's sermon is Israel's Judgment and Salvation. Israel's Judgment and Salvation. We'll be talking a lot about both features. Related to Israel, we'll make some distinctions and discuss uh, who Israel is uh, concerning judgment and salvation. Uh, But Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more? Will their fulfillment be? May God bless the reading of the word. What we have in this passage is a proclamation by Paul the Apostle about uh, the fact that Israel was aiming for righteousness. And we need to make a distinction as to what measure of righteousness they were aiming for. But Paul is very clear in discussing that they were certainly aiming Uh, For righteousness. However, they were not aiming for true righteousness. They were aiming for self-righteousness. And so in that regard, when we start and begin to look at this text, verse seven, it says, what then what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. And so this manner of seeking The fact that they sought their own self-righteousness, they missed true righteousness. And they did not seek true righteousness and somehow miss it. They were not seeking true righteousness at all. In fact, they were seeking self-righteousness. And in missing true righteousness, they didn't obtain it. So at no point in Israel's history did they, by their own hand, obtain true righteousness of the Lord. In fact, as Paul is implying and saying straight out as we look at the text, that they forfeited it. They forfeited it. And now you'll notice the sequence here. You'll notice why the doctrine of divine election is so important. 
and it is so important concerning both the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, if you look at the sequence of what he says in verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were, what? Chosen, obtained it. Those who were chosen, obtained it. It's not that they obtained it and then they were chosen. It's those who were chosen, obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So Israel, we know, were not chosen at wholesale. They were not ones who were called by God at wholesale, not as a group, not as a national people, uh, just for the purpose of being a national people. They were not chosen in that regard. There were not several of them chosen uh, as as relatively speaking. But what we learn and what we have learned to this point from Romans nine all the way up to where we are today, we have learned that there is a remnant Israel. There is a specific group of Israelites whom God has preserved. They are the objects of God's grace. They are the objects of his salvation. And they are certainly the object of his election, meaning the object of his choosing. He chose them specifically from among wholesale Israel as a specific group to be appointed to his salvation. But there is also an unbelieving Israel. There's an unbelieving Israel, and they are the object of God's judgment and of God's wrath. So this unbelieving Israel exists and coincides with believing Israel. You don't know them simply by sight. You don't know them simply by national affiliation. But you know them as they confess their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith and are brought to glory with him to reign in, uh, in his kingdom as joint heirs. But Paul says that there's something about this Israel of the present context in which he writes. The rest, he says, at the end of verse seven, were hardened. And then he says more and he begins to quote, specifically quotes uh, what is said in Deuteronomy and also in Isaiah uh, chapter 29, that God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. Well, we see that we have to look no further than the uh, events of the Exodus. And as we look at the events of the Exodus, you have a people whom God leads away from Egypt and out of Egypt. And then that generation continues to complain. They complain against God. They complain against Moses. And in complaining against Moses, they complain against God. And essentially, they are brought to judgment. And that cycle of disobedience continues perpetually throughout their generations. But they are not that first generation. They are not among those at wholesale who are brought into the promised land to get a glimpse of the promised land. Even Moses doesn't go with them. So you see even then that there's a distinction between believing Israel and those who are hardened and complained and obstinate. We'll talk about what that word means, obstinate. But Paul writes that. God gave them a spirit of stupor. This was not God giving them uh, in the sense of being able to rebel, that God gave them rebellion. No, God responded to their rebellion. And in responding to their rebellion, he gave them judgment. And so what you have then is you have a stubbornness. Paul calls it an obstinacy. That's what obstinance is. And you can sense, as Paul is saying what he's saying here, you can sense the frustration. There's a frustration. 
And why is there a frustration? Because Israel had the clearest evidence from God himself concerning himself, concerning his law, concerning his prophets, his divine plans, even the specks of the land that they were to receive. That they had clear evidence from God. They had clear evidence from God that he had destroyed the world by the flood. They had evidence from God that uh, he was going to send forth a Messiah from among them. They had testimony from the prophet Moses and the prophets at large. They had testimony of all the things that were to keep them distinct from the surrounding nations. So Israel had clear evidence from God. That only heightens the frustration. And not only about his existence, but as I said, it's not simply that they knew about God or knew he existed. But it's that they knew about his plans for them as a nation. They knew about his plans. And in the face of that clear revelation, they rebelled, they disobeyed, they settled for the trappings of the world system, and they rejected the Messiah sent by God. And then it gets worse. They killed him. Just like they killed the prophets. To this point, even in our timeline, as we look at the context with which we're in this morning, consider that they harassed the apostles to this point. And if they were successful, as they wanted to be successful, then they would too then see to their demise by having them killed. But in all that, while all this is going on, at every turn, they pronounce themselves deceptively as the divine nation. And so what Paul is providing is a distinction. He's saying you're not the divine nation in as much as you continue to reject God, you continue to kill his prophets, and you have killed his Messiah, and you will not repent of your actions. So you are not the divine nation. You are not the chosen nation as you stand. To Paul's point, as I said, this was a cause of frustration. And I don't want you to mistake that term that I'm saying, frustration. It was not a cause for anger. There was not an anger toward them, but it was pleading with them from the gospel to alter their course, to alter their course. It was the most sober minded plea. And I'll tell you, that has not changed one bit. That has not changed one bit. Well, what hasn't changed? The hardest people to reach with the gospel are those dressed in their own self-righteousness, thinking themselves children of God. They are the hardest to reach. They are the hardest people to reach. And there is an unspeakable frustration in that. I'm not saying anger, but there's a frustration in that. That you can't sit down with people who are clothed in their own self-righteousness. They know how to talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. That they attribute their salvation to some performance. And in some way to some system that may not be a righteous system, but a self-righteous system. And so I bring you into that frustration because that is the frustration that the Christian this hour faces. That there are people who are armed with the knowledge of God's goodness, armed with the knowledge of God's goodness, not the intimacy of it, but the knowledge of it, yet settling for their own self-righteousness. Those are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And so you see that this is the same, in a sense, hardening that is taking place in Israel, even more so. Well, we must then ask a question. As we see this word hardening, we have to ask a question as it's used. We must ask a question such as, what type of hardening has taken place exactly? What is the type of hardening 
that has taken place. Because it says the rest were hardened. So it says that some were chosen, the rest were hardened. And then we must ask, what is the scope of this hardening? Is it once and for all? Is it permanent? Is it temporary? But I will say this, that we must settle on this point before we launch into the answers to those questions. It is by God's hand of judgment that unbelieving Israel will not believe still. It is by God's hand of judgment that unbelieving Israel will not believe still. You'll see that in the passage. I'm not saying that God has caused them not to believe because then God would be guilty of deception. And God can never deceive any man. But what God has done is in their deception, he has caused them. He has caused them to consider his goodness and he has caused judgment upon them. He has put the full weight of his goodness before them. That is the cause that he's about. He's put Christ before them. He's put the covenants before them prior to that. He's caused the prophets to come before them. And in their unbelief, which God has not caused, he has judged them. He has judged them. And in verse 8, Paul calls it a spirit of stupor. He calls it a spirit of stupor. God gave them a spirit of stupor. And he borrows the, the terminology from what we see in the Old Testament. And there are some cross-references to consider, such as Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, and that whole context, and also Isaiah 29, verse 10, and that whole context. A spirit of stupor. It is what we would consider to be a deep sleep. It is a deep sleep. And this does not mean that they are at rest. It is a deep sleep, but they are certainly not at rest. This does not mean that they are at the kind of rest that we ought to celebrate unbelief and treat them as though they believe based on some very small standard of some very small gains of nationalism. Doesn't mean because we see a flag waving, we see a sliver of a nation existing, that that is the great gains of divine election, because that's not. They are in a deep sleep in as much as they continually and perpetually at wholesale reject the Messiah. It is a deep sleep. Let me explain what it is. It is the kind of deep sleep. It's the sense of the word. It is a kind of deep sleep where the senses are alive. So this deep sleep, the senses are alive. It's like if you were to be in the deep sleep, you can still hear certain things. You can smell, you can taste. But the senses are somewhat not in your favor. But this is a kind of deep sleep where the senses are alive. They can see. They have eyes. They have ears. But they have been rendered lethargic and apathetic. When they hear anything beyond the Old Testament, they block you out. It makes you think. It makes you think about the present state of modern evangelicalism, a deep sleep. You begin to open a text and set it before people and proclaim the glorious truth of God's word just in its simplicity, by faith. And the people block you out. They block you out. And so it was with, it, with Israel. They hear what is said. It's not that they're deaf. They hear what is said. 
but they give no thought at all to how it applies to them personally. In fact, you might as well be speaking a foreign tongue. If you proclaim to them a Messiah who came to sacrifice himself on their behalf and offered himself because they could not bring themselves to a righteous standing before God, then you will see the deep sleep. It's true of Israel. It's true of the cults. It's true of anyone in self-righteousness. But it is because a spirit of stupor has fallen upon Israel by the hand of God. Essentially, you will not hear. Therefore, you cannot hear. He gives them over to their will. But it's like I said, I, I cannot help but think even in studying this passage, I often step back and I try to look at where things are in our present kind of our present uh, generation. And I cannot help but think that's what has happened within modern evangelicalism all these many years. Because, listen, activity does not mean vitality. Activity does not mean vitality. Vitality means life. Just because something is active and it's moving and people are moving and shaking and walking around and doing things and even saying they're doing things for God, that doesn't mean life. It doesn't mean it leads to eternal life. Because Israel was about all those religious things. Even if we were to rewind back into the gospel times, very active temple, very active proselytes who were coming to the temple to pay homage. And the Israelites were saying at that time, hey, we belong to God. Our ceremonies, our traditions all lead to Yahweh. They are all connected to the prophets and the apostles. There wasn't a lack of activity, but that activity had nothing to do with spiritual life, had nothing to do with spiritual life. And so I believe that part of having a stupor, a deep sleep, is when people abandon life for activity. It's just activity. And you see that in Israel. And Paul says later in Corinthians, that ought to be a warning to us. But to verse Eight concerning Israel, Paul says it very plainly about them. He says they have eyes, but their eyes do not see. They have ears, but their ears do not hear. And I would say the great deception about this concerning Israel and their blindness and their deafness in this regard is that they saw what they wanted to see and interpreted it and they heard what they wanted to hear. And interpreted it. But they didn't interpret it rightly. So they had eyes, but their eyes did not see. Their eyes didn't see what they were supposed to see. The clear revelation and testimony of God concerning his redemptive plans all the way from the Old Testament to the end. They do not see and hear, even this hour, as Paul will say, they do not see and hear concerning the truth related to the law. They don't see that. The writings, the prophets, they don't see them as they ought. And they don't hear them as they ought. And Paul wrote that it had come down from the point of their disobedience in the Old Testament era to the point of time by which Paul writes. He says that has been the case the entire time. At no point had they achieved true righteousness by their own hand. At no point. Well, why? Because it's impossible. And we can extend that because we have not seen the mass ingathering of remnant Israel 
to this point in our own history. We have not seen where mass Israel has seen as they ought to see and heard as they ought to hear. So that is the great argument for remnant Israel. That is the great argument from God dealing with them at a later time. The next phrase of verse 9 is Paul's pointing to the prophet King David from Psalm 69. And we read that this morning. But I want to kind of read verse 9 and 10 and then begin to explain the context to which I'm referring. In verse 9, as David says, let their table... Let their table become a snare and a trap. This is a certain judgment that will fall upon those who have eyes that will not see and ears that will not hear. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So that was uttered by. David concerning his enemies. Because first, as we look at, just kind of consider Psalm 69, it is David's hope for retribution to come to his enemies. It's a prayer that David has to bring, for God to bring judgment to his enemies. So this psalm also includes some prophetic sayings from David that will also be quoted about Israel by the Lord Jesus himself during his ministry in the Gospels. But in this psalm, David's enemies, they have the high ground visibly. And they have cast him out of the land. I believe that that is what has taken place. Either they have or are going to. But I believe that by this point, that is the case. And in David's anguish, he cried for help from the Lord to vindicate God's name, but also to vindicate his servant. So that's what's happening overall in Psalm 69. And so where Jesus quotes And fulfills the prophecy of David as David spoke what he did. The same thing is in place. It's that you have unbelieving Israel saying that they're God's chosen people chasing away God's chosen people. And so there's a cry for God to bring judgment upon them. But you see here. Something that you and I are probably acquainted with even in the time in which we live. But that there's always a great false confidence to God's enemies. And you see it in Psalm 69. You also will see it throughout the New Testament. You've seen it in the gospel of Matthew as we went through that gospel. But there's a great confidence to David's enemies. They have become prideful. If you were to look very closely at Psalm 69, they have become prideful and arrogant. They have thought, listen to this, they have thought since David is no more among them that they have achieved peace and righteousness. That is the greatest deception of unbelieving people, that when they chase away the Christians, they believe now where they stand is more righteous because their theater of self-righteousness is now at the fray. There's nobody to oppose it. There's no standing enemies. There are only yes men and yes women who remain. That no one is there to challenge what they do by the word of God. Therefore, they believe that they stand in peace. And so you see that in Psalm 69, that that is what David is crying out against. That since his kingdom is now uh, being aggressively attacked. And part of it is the consequence of his sin, but 
It is also the fact that the conquest is coming from the seed of the serpent against them. He's still a man after God's own heart. But these people begin to take, they take over and they proclaim themselves to be the righteous. And so David's cry, and even if you study many of the Psalms, David's cry is not against this kind of overt and demonstrated demonstrative wickedness. It's not that the wickedness can always be seen by the naked eye. It's by those who are saying they are righteous, and yet they are God's enemies. And they are saying that David is God's enemy. And it was the same thing in the time of Christ, and it's certainly the same thing in the time of Paul the Apostle. And believe me when I tell you, throughout the ages, it is the same thing today. But David wants retribution because they have not achieved peace and righteousness. In fact, they are the object of God's divine wrath. But along the way, they have set traps for the righteous. And they have ensnared the righteous successfully for a time. So much so that it appears that they are the righteous. As I've said, the traps they laid seem to be successful. But appearances can be deceiving, as they say. And so what is said here deals with all that. It deals with the momentum that unbelieving Israel has gained throughout the ages in appearing to be righteous Israel. And how they have destroyed the righteous and have, with every turn, proclaimed themselves to be the righteous. So their traps seem to be successful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be traps. But the judgment is not only that they would be ensnared by the traps that they have laid for others, but that the deception that they have been successful in creating will be exposed in that great and terrible day of the Lord. It is that also that it would be made plain to them that they are the objects of judgment and of wrath for dismissing the Lord and his servants from among them. If you go back to the frustration of obstinacy, of stubbornness that Israel faces and the fact that they have elevated themselves in self-righteousness to say we are now God's people. We know it's by their own standard. Then nothing short of God's wrath will be the certain remedy for that condition. And so that's why Paul is writing, because he says only some survive that. Only the remnant survives that, not all of Israel, because it is so embedded. And so in Romans chapter 11, verse 10 and 11, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. As he quotes the prophecy, we have to understand what is said next or else we'll fall on the other side of this. And the other side of this is to say well, it sounds like to me Israel is cast out altogether. Shame on Israel. Let us raise up the church. Let us have the Gentiles only. And there is no Israel. And every time we hear the word Israel, let's simply assimilate them and the term with Gentiles. But Paul doesn't say that either. He doesn't say that either because of what is said in verse 11. And we'll get there. But listen, this persistent and continual stubbornness is indeed that. We cannot escape that. It is persistent and it is continual. 
And so when people try to mock the position, the biblical position of believing that remnant Israel will be dealt with specifically in the tribulation era, that they themselves will be dealt with according to the 12 tribes and that they themselves will be brought to the end of themselves at the ingathering of the Gentiles before that time. And that all the things that take place will take place concerning them to bring them to their salvation. When people mock that and they say, well, Israel is rebellious and Israel hasn't believed. We agree. They are rebellious. They have not yet at wholesale believed. But it is temporary for some and permanent for the rest. And when people say, well, we believe on the other side of that, we believe that because there is a nation proclaiming itself to be Israel, that we believe that they are the nation of God's divine affection. Well, that is also untrue because you cannot have a divine nation that rejects the divine testimony from Jesus Christ. You cannot have a divine nation that will not worship the Messiah sent to them. You cannot have a divine nation. You can have a cultural nation. You can have a nation that says that they're a divine nation. But in reality, they are not a divine nation until they kiss the Messiah. But Romans 11 is plain. He says it. He doesn't end it at Romans 10. For 11, he says, I say then to answer the question along the lines of what I just said. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Because if they stumbled to fall, nobody could pick them up again. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, then he's emphatic. He's emphatic here. So we don't have to replace them. We don't have to assimilate them. We don't have to explain away their existence and over-spiritualize their existence because Paul keeps the, distinct, the distinction plain. He says, may it never be. May it never be. And what does he go to? He goes not to their national momentum. He goes to their transgression. He says, but by their transgression, so by their wickedness, by their sins against God, by the things that they committed in disobedience and rebellion, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Well, if we would stop there, then we can replace them. We can cast them away. We can just simply say, well, Jews are the church. Church is the Jews and all the funny things that people try to do with that. But we can't do that because he says salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Well, if you're trying to make them jealous, God is not done with them. If you're trying to make them jealous, then God must still deal with them because there's something that God wants to happen to them as they become jealous. It's not just for the sake of jealousy. And so much of our text beyond this, as we look to this in the coming days, will deal with that. It will deal with, well, what does it look like? When Israel becomes jealous and I'll give you a hint, he wants to provoke them to salvation. He essentially wants them to say, well, Lord, how can you save the Gentiles? God of Israel, how can you treat them with divine affection? And not treat us in the same way. And a part of the deception of Israel rejecting God in dealing with the Gentiles is that you have deceptive groups among the Gentiles who have risen up through history and have persecuted people of Jewish culture and have said we represent God's interests. That's false. 
because the kingdom does not advance yet by sword until Jesus Christ returns and, and does what he does in judgment by sword. Kingdom of God advances by the proclamation of his gospel, calling people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So the deception is that Israel has furthered themselves in rejection because they say, well, our Messiah and our God would not treat us this way. But my point is that judgment also has features of casting down the people. And this Gentile salvation does not make the true believing Gentile hostile toward Israel. In fact, the Gentile begins to speak out in favor of true Israel, hoping that those who are standing in the nation as it stands would hear the voice and testimony of God toward them. But this salvation has come to the Gentiles and it has come to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews, you benefit, you benefit because God has set to save his remnant people by your salvation as a Gentile to make the Jews jealous so that they would be gathered into him because they wouldn't listen. So the cause for their jealousness, he saved the Gentiles. That even shows us and Paul will say it, that even shows us we can't be arrogant. We can't cast off Israel because God has done what he's done, not by our own performance either. But it's all by faith and all by grace. He's brought us in where we were not seeking. Well, why? Where am I getting that from? Romans 3, Paul says no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God, not Jew or Gentile. But there is also no partiality with God concerning salvation among Jews or Gentiles. So you see that this persistent rebellion, Paul speaks to it. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And then he goes further. He says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? He raises the stakes here that there is going to be a fulfillment of Jews who were made jealous. And it sounds like to me that that fulfillment is going to benefit everybody. It's going to benefit everybody because it's what God has decreed. It's what God wants. God wants their fulfillment and he wants there to be a distinction that they have been fulfilled. He doesn't simply want us to blend the two together and to make it nice and neat. To develop a false theology that somehow does all this verbal and theological gymnastics on who Israel is so that we don't have to explain what God is going to do later. He doesn't need help. He's going to bring it to pass. Paul is emphatic. They did not fall forever. May it never be, he says. Because they disobeyed and sinned and rebelled, salvation has gone to the Gentiles. To provoke jealousy among them. That too is the judgment. That's the judgment. Salvation for the Gentiles is the judgment. Because they were supposed to bring testimony about God's faithfulness and saving grace among the Gentiles. But they did not. They raised up a false righteousness and brought that to the Gentiles. 
So God granted salvation to the Gentiles at wholesale, at wholesale, raising up the church to provoke remnant Israel to salvation, to provoke the Jews to jealousy and repentance for their salvation. And as we read further, the jealousy that is established in the hearts of remnant Israel will be effective. It is an effectual call. He will accomplish divine salvation in them by this jealousy. But this jealousy was not meant to enrage them to commit murder against Gentiles. This jealousy was not meant for them to commit violence, but instead it was to bring them to repentance, to bring them to their knees and surrender. And so Paul says it best. Their transgression is meant for the world's riches, the riches of divine salvation, because that is what has now been opened up to us. And their rebellion and failure to obey is, as Paul says, riches for the Gentiles. Let's pray.